Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Wednesday, January 31st. Uh, coming to you live from D.C., I'll be giving a little update on the great climate change free speech trial of the century in a few moments' time. I had yesterday one of my colleagues remark that my chair looks very Klaus Schwabian, so I assure you this is not just me uh, holding up in Davos. I am in Washington, D.C., which is a different type of elite-filled dungeon, but we'll save that commentary for uh, for my return. Got to make sure I, I get out of here alive. Uh, it's good to talk to you. We have a few great things planned for the program today. We'll uh, do a deep dive into what the science is and uh, therefore what it means to follow it. Now, that's uh, going to be an interview in the context of public health, but kind of applies to the climate discussion as well, certainly. And we're seeing, as we've talked about on the show in the past with Mark Morano, an increasing overlap between the people that want to control you under the auspices of public health science and those who want to do it under the auspices of so-called climate science as well. But I, I want to begin talking about this uh, rather, I, I want to say bizarre, but I, I actually think this whole interview is par for the course. This interview done by Jody Thomas, who was at the time of the interview, the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Now, Jody Thomas, just to put some context here, she's left the post now. But she was in this job. Now, she is not someone who had a background in intelligence or security or law enforcement or anything like that. She is a career bureaucrat. I, I looked at her CV on the uh, government website, and she was a bureaucrat in Passport Canada, and then she went on to the Coast Guard, and eventually she ended up in the role she occupied for the last couple of years, being Justin Trudeau's National Security and Intelligence Advisor. Now, she's a bureaucrat, not a partisan. So she's supposed to be somewhat more impartial, although her job is to provide advice to the prime minister, which the prime minister then uh, filters into his own decision-making process and turns into policy. But we've seen from Jody Thomas in the past a desire to be I think, more in line with the government's talking points than anything else. This was especially true when she testified before the Public Order Emergency Commission. She was one of the only experts that actually uh, came forward and started talking about why, yes, the government was right to put the Emergencies Act in play. Now, you fast forward to the last week, and the Emergencies Act has been ruled by the federal court to have been unlawfully introduced, the measures unconstitutional, and it so happens that Jody Thomas was doing an exit interview on CTV with Vashti Capellos. Now, I'm going to play this whole clip for you. It's not the entirety of the interview, but it's the entirety of the interview that has to do with the convoy. And I was at first going to like do little snippets of it, play like, you know, 15 seconds react, 20 seconds react. But I'm like, I, I don't want anyone to accuse me of taking this out of context or cutting it up. I'm going to give you the full like two and a half minute long segment here. And we'll talk about it afterwards. Please do bear with me from this because this is incredibly revealing and dangerously so. You were advising the government during the time that they invoked that act. Why did you specifically feel it did meet that bar? So I think, as I said in my Polk testimony, what we were seeing in terms of activity on the ground and intelligence was very clear. Uh, the, there was a huge, huge occupation here in Ottawa. It was increasingly violent. We were starting to hear language about weapons being in the trucks. 
we had the, the arrest in Coots, which was a significant weapons cache and very concerning. The charges that have been laid there are indicative of what was going on and, we, and what was being planned. And we were seeing daily pop-ups of we're going to occupy this, we're going to occupy that, bridges, rail lines, more people moving across the country, east and west, to converge on Ottawa and Toronto. In our view, it was national in scope. It was growing and we had to take action to end it. There was an economic threat to Canada. There was a security threat to Canada. There was a reputational threat to Canada. But the, what we didn't know was as concerning as what we did know, and we knew a lot. And what we do you knew, mean by that? We knew a lot about what the plans were, that these people were going to stay. They, there was the whole uh, group of people who thought they were gonna overthrow the government, Obviously, that wasn't going to happen, but they were here to stay and they were using intimidation and violence and threat um, to ensure that the occupation persisted. And we were seeing increasingly what we would call radicalized language uh, from people about we're going to kill, we'll do whatever we need to do. Um, and the connectedness or the inspiration that the pop-ups were getting from what was going on in Ottawa left us very concerned for the national stability. And economic security is national security. National security is economic security. Uh, people couldn't work, people couldn't go to work, people couldn't walk the streets, people couldn't cross bridges. Um, the economy wasn't being affected in the auto industry. Those things are significant. Where do I even begin? So what Jody Thomas is saying there, and, and I, I, let me just, point blank say, it is dangerous to me that we have someone who is in this role in this country who just makes things up. That, that's literally what she was doing there. This is a woman who either is so woefully unaware of the reality and the facts on the ground that she says govern her decisions, or just does not care. At the very beginning, she talks about the convoy, and I'll use her words here, being, quote, increasingly violent. We were starting to hear language about weapons being in the trucks. This was a rumor. And she says language. Okay, maybe someone said it. If all the police actions that took place there, I am not aware of any weapons charges, certainly no significant weapons charges, if there were any at all. Uh, but this idea that there was this cache of weapons in Ottawa in the trucks, which she's alluding to there being language of, is fundamentally untrue. Now, she, of course, mentions the Coot situation. And in the case of Coot, yes, we did have police make arrests and seize a large cache of weapons. Now, those charges are still pending. The trial's underway. This is a, another issue entirely, but Coots and Ottawa were separate entities, and Coots was, by the way, dealt with without the Emergencies Act at all. But increasingly violent is the line from the one-time National Security and Intelligence Advisor in Canada. You go to the next little bit of her interview here, and she talks about why it was necessary, why the government needed to step in to do something to end, and she lists three things that were happening. The first is a security threat. The other is an economic security threat. And the other is reputational harm to Canada. 
Now, the Emergencies Act, by the way, does not really apply to economic harm. The government, this is a government talking point that she's parroting, a Trudeau Freeland talking point that she's parroting, that economic harm constitutes a threat to the security of Canada, when that's not really a plain text reading of the legislation. But then reputational harm? So if Justin Trudeau is embarrassed, that's a national emergency? And that's something that we all need to have uh, soldiers, well, not soldiers, but we all need to have riot police in the street to deal with because Justin Trudeau is embarrassed. No, a reputational harm to Canada, if such a thing existed there, is not a national emergency. But she lists that in the same breath as a security threat, which doesn't really exist because, as we know, there were no violence uh, acts. There were no violent acts that were increasing. There was no violence in general that was increasing. And this language of weapons wasn't the case. But she uses that in the same breath as economic harm and reputational harm. Now, she does talk about the fact, which I would agree with her with, that people in this demonstration said they were not going anywhere. They wanted to stay. They wanted to entrench. Now, that was a stated goal of the Freedom Convoy. We aren't going to go anywhere. But then she goes on to say that they were using, and again, I'm quoting Jody Thomas's words here, they were using intimidation and violence and threat to ensure that the occupation persisted. She says this with no evidence or justification or support whatsoever. We're supposed to just take her at her word that this was taking place. Intimidation and violence and threat. And then to cap it all off, she says, and again, I'm quoting directly from Jody Thomas, we were seeing increasingly what we would call radicalized language about, quote, we're going to kill We'll do whatever we need to do. I listened to hours and hours and hours, days and days, weeks and weeks of testimony before the Public Order Emergency Commission, and this did not come up. This idea that there was an increasing rhetoric of people making serious threats connected to the protest that they were going to kill. Now, I'm not saying there weren't people on Twitter or in email inboxes that may have said things as they say throughout the year. And is, by the way, unacceptable and unjustifiable and threats should be prosecuted and investigated in the other order. But this was not representative of the convoy protest. So we have a government now that has lost a major court battle in terms of whether it had the legal and constitutional right to invoke the Emergencies Act. The chief advisor on national security and intelligence issues, a woman who is basically giving the Trudeau line to justify what the government did, has been entirely consumed by this narrative that is fundamentally untrue. Now, look, maybe she's got access to all of these uh, details and all this information that has never been made public. But given that there had never been any charges that reflect what she has described seeing and experiencing, which she's just described and we're supposed to take her word for. There are no charges to support that any of this was happening. So I don't know who's going to replace this woman in terms of what their approach to the role is going to be. But this is not a country that we can have a great deal of confidence in as taking national security and intelligence seriously when this is what advice uh, is being passed to the government. No surprise the Emergencies Act ended up being put in play when this was just such a distorted and one-sided view of what was going on that anyone who was on the streets themselves knows was not there. Again, I mean, economic harm. She wasn't even talking about borders. She's saying people weren't allowed to like walk down the street and go to work, which is also untrue. You had members of parliament that were walking 
back and forth through this thing all day, every day. It doesn't mean it was always pleasant because these people just didn't like you and didn't want you to uh, be governing in the way that you were, but they were allowed to come and go. This was not a situation in which people were being prevented from going. Now, some businesses chose to close down themselves. Uh, by the way, the businesses that decided to stay open during the convoy made a ton of money. I'm thinking in particular of that one shawarma shop on, uh, I think, Albert Street, which just had like a lineup out the door all day, every day, because they weren't afraid of a few truckers in downtown Ottawa. So that, again, this is, I saw that interview and it was just a couple of days ago and I was in disbelief. I, now I'm just assuming everything's like AI generated because I was like, there's no way. But then I remembered her public order emergency commission testimony and was saying, yeah, okay, that was probably a pretty genuine reflection of what she thinks. But had to start off on that. As I mentioned at the outset, I am right now in Washington, D.C., where we are about halfway through the third week of Michael Mann's defamation lawsuit against Mark Stein and Rand Simberg. I, I gave you yesterday and Monday a bit of a primer on the case. So I'll just, instead of rehashing that, I'll just defer you or refer you back to those if, if you want a, a bit of a catch up here. Yesterday we had the plaintiff, so that's Michael Mann, who's suing Mark Stein and Rand Simberg, continue to make his case. They're almost done on their side, but the delays on this have been uh, quite something. So they had Rand Simberg, who's Mark Stein's co-defendant and someone I, I'm not as familiar with on the stand, and, and he had written that initial blog post that compared Michael Mann to uh, Jerry Sandusky insofar as the school's cover-up of Jerry Sandusky's uh, conduct, which was atrocious. Uh, he was basically saying, well, if they're going to cover that up, what won't they cover up? And he was linking that to the academic issues. Again, you can agree or disagree, but there is a fair comment question here and a free speech question. And then by the end of the day, uh, Ransomberg is done and they brought in this expert who I, I feel like the jury was just, their eyes were glazing over because he was going on about like thermodynamics. And they're trying to make this case that, oh, well, Michael uh, Mann is the eminent scientist and he's so eminently eminent that uh, he's the most sciencey scientist out there. And anyone who criticizes him has to be some, you know, backwoods, right-wing climate science denying yokel. And it's been interesting to see how transparent Michael Mann's team has been in, in trying to basically make him out to be the gatekeeper of science because there are plenty of scientists who have disagreed with his rather alarmist and extreme view of global warming. This idea that there was never any global warming and then in the last century it just shot up and, and then we had the, again, it's literally the graph that was at the core of the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And even when scientists, not, you know, climate denier scientists, but, you know, normal scientists have said, well, yes, you know, I agree with global warming, but I don't quite take it as far as you do. Uh, he has vilified them. He has maligned them and tarred them. And, and some of those sciences, scientists are actually going to be speaking for the defendants because they're saying, listen, I'm, I'm not like one of these right-wing Fox News types, but I have grave concerns with the methodology and the conclusion of this research, which was the research that Mark Stein was criticizing that got him sued for defamation. So all of this, again, I, I go back to, it's a jury trial. So watching the jury is always a bit interesting, but I go back to wondering what on earth the point of it is in their view, because they're going to be thinking, hang on, a guy said something you didn't like about you in a blog post 12 years ago, and your life has just improved at every step of the way beyond then. Your life has just continued to improve. You've made more money. You've become more famous. Your work has been incorporated in more government policy. Not that I support that, but that's what's happening here. 
And that's basically where we are on this. So the jury, I'm, I'm thinking like, how do we have a defamation case in which the person who has allegedly been defamed has not suffered anything and has, if anything, come out better off on the back end of it? So uh, there was yesterday, again, there was a fair bit of procedural stuff that I, I don't think it's worth going into because they're debating, oh, well, can this witness testify? And is this going to be an expert witness or a fact witness? So uh, hopefully in tomorrow's update, I'll have a bit more of a uh, substantive a substantive set of uh, details and chronologies to share with you, but I did want to uh, get to that. But as I said, I mean, what we have now in society are these gatekeepers in the science world, people that believe they are the only ones, they are the oracles, they are the only ones that can hold the truth, and we are supposed to all just fall in line behind them. And this is especially true on public health issues. So I, I wanted to uh, kick to an interview I recorded just before I left for Washington, D.C., which we'll get to right after the break. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, what has been one of the most common refrains of the last few years? Some variation of trust the science or follow the science, as though science is this universal and clear oracle that we can all take our cues from on anything and everything. Well, was science itself the problem in a way? There was a fascinating essay from the C2C Journal written by public policy analyst Margaret Coppola that makes that very point. The essay is called A Pandemic Caused by Science with a I've tried to do the inflection there so as to indicate the question mark at the end of the uh, piece's title there, but it was a fascinating read, and I thought I would dig into it with Margaret herself, who joins me now. Margaret, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Now, let's refer to, let, let's talk first off about what it is you're referring to. When you say or suggest that science itself may have been to blame, what are you getting at? The crux of the argument boils down to the use of a technology called gain-of-function science. And what gain-of-function is, it involves the pulling together of different viruses and taking out different bits of them, splicing and dicing them, so that you come up with the worst and worst of each virus. <laughs> so you end up with a synthetic virus that has the attributes of the, of, of, of the other two. Now, in this case, it does look, uh, it is near certainty that gain-of-function technology was involved in the whatever was going on at the Wuhan labs uh, uh, and between American and, and Chinese scientists um, in, in Wuhan um, working on this mysterious virus, which turned out in the end to have all the properties of of SARS-CoV-2, uh, which of course, as we know, was the final cause of COVID-19. That, I mean, let's talk about that lab for a moment, because at the beginning, we were all told that the culprit was a bat or a pangolin, basically, was uh, some, you know, horrendous twist of fate that led to a very unfortunate situation at one of the wet markets in Wuhan. And very early on, people were skeptical of that and, and suggested that this could have been a, a creation 
of a lab intentionally or, or unintentionally leaked. And, and what was fascinating with that argument is that as more and more evidence mounted, this thing that was a conspiracy theory at some point in 2022 or 2020 has effectively become an, an, an accepted fact, or at least the most plausible scenario here. Now, do we do we know anything beyond that as far as was this carelessness? Was it perhaps intentional? Difficult to say. Everybody is erring on the side of giving the Chinese, you know, giving the Chinese a lot of leeway. That is that it was an accidental release mm -hmm. uh, or an accidental leak. Uh, release implies it wasn't accidental, mm -hmm. an accidental leak. And um, I mean, certainly, you know, whether this is done in in the name of, of prudent geopolitical uh, maneuvering or whether it's 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 a it's a, a kind another kind of cover up, we we won't ever know. My my sense is that both the Chinese and the Americans are caught in a in a um, stalemate of mutual culpability. That is, in the sense that. We do know for certain that the Americans funded the, 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 the work that was going on in Wuhan uh, through a series of elaborate and arcane roundabout ways of getting money to Wuhan um, uh, through a, 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 an intermediary called Echo Health Alliance, um, an NGO, that an NGO. So, so a, the Americans financed it. There are people coming out and saying that boldly, although not everybody. The official word from the American government is that they had that they had nothing to do with it. But there are some who are being intellectually honest, like, for instance, Robert Redfield, who was the former um, former director of the uh, Center for Disease Control of one of the arch uh, agencies within the American government on the health side who is saying out, out loud and in your face, we funded it. Um, and then on the other hand, you had the work that was going on in Wuhan, which is not being denied by, by the Chinese. Xi Zhengli, who is the chief scientist, again, a geneticist, a very uh, an accomplished geneticist, again, a, a, a tech, who, who's good at the splicing and the dicing of genes, um, and she's not denying that they did the work there, but she is denying that it was their fault or that it was ever leaked. And she's saying, no, 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 it came from it came from the bats over in this mine, and and uh, that's that was the real source. At least that's the last excuse I've heard from her on this one. So, but but yes, now in all fairness, you know, it made a lot of sense to think in the first instance that it might have come from an animal or animal mm -hmm. or bat host. Um, this is where a lot of pandemics have come from. This is what the what, what the Spanish the Spanish flu was originated with, you know, flea infested rodents. And they jumped to that then jumped to the to humans. Uh, so this is not abnormal. For this kind of thing to happen, I mean, just even thinking in terms of rabies. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a virus that jumps to a human from an animal. So, I mean, it made sense for a lot of people to think that right away. So, fair enough. But you know, getting down to brass tacks and getting into the science of the actual virus itself, and the fact that it has certain genetic components, which now other scientists have sliced and diced and said, "Hey, wait a minute." 
uh, this looks like it was pretty well man-made. And now, even since the writing of my article, there has been additional information has come out. You'll remember in the article, I refer, refer to two key, key scientific papers. Nobody was hiding this, by the way, that this science was going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, papers dating way back to 2005, you know, they were looking for viruses in bats and 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 the Zhengli and and a um, a renowned uh, geneticist uh, located in the University of North Carolina, Ralph Barrick. They had been working together for quite some time on stuff like this. Um, so uh, you know, nobody was being untoward or or, or uh, you know trying to hide anything here. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were two papers that were absolutely devastating. One that simply said, hey, we've created this great thing, a chimera. We've come, we figured out how to put two viruses together to come up with a, a virus that's even worse. Um, and in this case, it was pulling together the elements of the SARS virus, which caused the pandemic in 2002 to 2004. They took that virus and then spliced and diced it with another virus. We're not sure where that one came from. And lo and behold, um, it came out looking an awful lot like SARS-CoV-2, or at least became SARS-CoV-2. I, I want to just go back to the fundamentals here, because, I mean, it, it's easy when you're talking about a term that's not familiar to people, which I think gain of function is, is certainly, or a, a few years ago was not familiar to a lot of people. And you're describing the function very, very calmly and, and very accurately. But a lot of people would hear this and be like, what on earth would you expect to happen if you're mucking around in the engine room like that? And I, I'm wondering, what are the noble intentions of this? If there, if there were to be any, are, are, is it about uh, trying to understand uh, the, the virulence of these things to protect against them? Because certainly it, it's easy to understand in a, a military context or a bio-warfare context what the value of this is. What's their defense for why they're doing this research in the first place and why it justifies the alliance between United States scientists and Chinese scientists? Well, uh, ostensibly it was to create gain of function is, is justified by uh, the argument that if you create a, a, a virus, then you can create the vaccine that will address it if it ever, whatever reason, <laughs> becomes. But you are willing the virus into existence that might never have appeared in doing exactly. that. Yeah. What's, you know, the point is here, here we are dealing with a virus that never would have existed unless these scientists had put it together in the first place. So, hey, reading the, the, uh, the, the, the second paper, the diffuse paper, I refer to two papers. The second paper mm -hmm. that came out and actually new information has just come out since it was, since, um, uh, since I wrote the article. And uh, again, what they were apparently trying, what they argued that they were trying to do was they were trying to put together a, a virus that would reinfect bats and make them uh, in turn immune and unable to then pass on the virus. Okay, there was some sort of immunological thing that, that they were trying to, hoping to achieve where bat populations were concerned because bats are the largest uh, largest uh, population of, of mammals that harbor this the coronavirus. And I mean, and there are all kinds of coronaviruses. There are mm -hmm. over 200 have been recognized, but I mean, apparently there are estimates there are in the thousands of the kinds of coronaviruses that are out there and some with varying degrees of, of lethality. So, so that was one argument about why it was necessary to do this. 
um, the second argument and the more common one is that um, that it is there to create, you know, to cre you create something so that you can create a vaccine to deal with it. And now you can see how this would make sense in a military sense, in, in a military context. I mean, if, if you've got uh, people out there, enemies, <coughs> enemies uh, who are uh, developing their own biological uh, warfare, you know, biological weapons, and you've got to try to anticipate what the heck they are trying to going to, to hit you with. And so you want to come up with a vaccine that's actually going to, um, to deal with it all. That makes some sense. Um, the, but there was a point, but the bigger risk is in all of that is, you know, in the, in the course of doing this, you end up with what we ended up with COVID. Well, and, and also just to, to jump in there, Margaret, if, if I may, I mean, the idea of, of developing that to protect against what your enemies may do with China, who maybe we don't call an enemy, but is certainly not a friend, does not strike me as the wisest course of that. And I mean, in Canada, we've certainly seen front and center about what happens when you let people affiliated with the, the Chinese regime into our top security labs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, no, none of this makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, and there are various theories about why and how this might have mm -hmm. taken place, that it was a CIA covert operation of some kind. We were trying to figure out what was going on in their labs and they, they complied. The drugs on us. And they ended up, as usual, with our technology, right? Yeah. So now they have all this, this gain-of-function technology with which, and I'm sure they're underway, you know, the, the gain-of-function technology. Xi Jinping Li knows everything that Ralph Barrett knows. <laughs> and, hey, uh, and she's the she's the coronavirus authority. She can actually go, go out. I mean, she's got immediate access to all kinds of bats. <laughs> there are a prodigious number of bat caves in, in China. So the um, so you know none of it really makes a lot of sense and 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 which is all the more worrying because yeah. if, if you could ascribe some clear motive to what was going on, it might be easier to deal with. The one thing that is clear out of all of this is what do we do about these gain of function um, uh, labs? Because this is going on everywhere. It's not just in China, um, as Redfield pointed out universities everywhere are playing around, tinkering around with these viruses and the, this, this, these kinds of technologies. And yes, there are, uh, leaks are routine. These are not, I didn't mention that in the article, but I mean, I think there was something like 200 lab leaks every, you know, every few years. Um, and okay, they don't count anything, but one might. And, the, and all it takes is one, one, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So, so yes. Um, uh, now, I mean, the other side of the whole whole equation is not just that this virus was created and somehow rather got out into the into the world. You know, the, the other side of the equation is how the world reacted then. And that's equally disturbing. I found that very disturbing as well. Well, yes. And, and that, I mean, has, has been covered exhaustively on this show, not nearly enough by, I would say, legacy media sources. And, and C2C Journal and yourself have been very strong on that. And I, it's easy to point the finger at, you know, the American government and, you know, the Fauci regime and all of that. And certainly easy to point the finger at the Chinese. Canada has never been immune from this, no pun intended. I, I mean, I mentioned the, the case of, of Canada and 
uh, China cooperating at that uh, bio lab in, in Winnipeg. But but Canada has been a part of a lot of these, you know, cross-cultural exchanges of research as well, has it not? Yes, absolutely. And, um, and I mean, and, and it looks like we're going to get even more if the, if the WHO pandemic treaty goes through, because they'll be calling on everybody, all the global partners to go get out there and gather up their viruses and send them into their labs. And by the way, send them also to the WHO, uh, where the where the major pharmaceutical companies will, of course, have a lot of fun with them as well. We'll see it all over again. So this is very disturbing. And I, and I you know, if if at one level, certainly the big issue that needs to be discussed here is whether or not we should be doing this stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, President Obama uh, called a moratorium on gain-of-function research. Well, it was at that point then that they figured out how to use an NGO to get the funding to another part of the world to to keep doing it anyway. Yeah, they just start outsourcing it at that point, and it makes it worse because you lose that oversight and and transparency that that nominally existed. Exactly. So, you know, that... So there was that certain big, big downside from, from, from that. But... But the question then becomes, well, how do you monitor this? How do you guarantee, you know, check for safety and, and what have you? Incidentally, we had in what we do know about Wuhan is that most of the work was done in substandard biosafety securities labs. They had a fabulous new lab, a BSL, highest level safety, a new lab had been built um, very recently, but turns out most of the work on on the SARS viruses were being done in biosafety lab two and three. So again, you know, how do you monitor? How do you how do you keep track of all of this? And how do you why are we allowing this? So there there are I mean, reading and reviewing the voluminous evidence to date, there are really two paths that are, are facing governments. I mean, you could look at this and, and say what you're saying, which is, this is a, a cautionary tale. We should not do this type of research, not put ourselves in, in this uh, position again. But I, I fear that too many lawmakers and, and so-called experts are doing the opposites and saying, ah, see, this is why we need to do the research. This yes. is why we need to do it. And the, the, they're looking at the same premise and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Margaret, but they're drawing the opposite conclusion. Exactly. And and as Redfield says, you know, the next pandemic will come from a lab somewhere and it'll be worse. And who knows whether or not we can or will be ready for it. Let's hope we are. And and, and heaven knows we have, have a lot of salutary lessons to be mm-hmm. obtained from our, our past experience here. Uh, not least that, that individual health authorities really, really need to drill down and decide and, you know, take all this information in and decide really where they stand on it. Because what ended up happening last time was the Americans and the, and the ph- pharmaceutical companies ran slipshod over everybody. And uh, without, without offering fully tested vaccines. And of course, we're still paying for that. And we're likely to pay for that for a long time with our health health conditions. So there is a lot to think about here. And I'm hoping that that the our health authorities are having this discussion and our governments are having these discussions. And at the, at, at the most local level, which is where these discussions have to take place and where decisions need to take mm-hmm. place. I'm a great believer in subsidiarity. You know, decisions at the local level, not at the global level, for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, we can all agree on that, I, I would hope. Uh, a Pandemic Caused by Science is an essay in C2C Journal you could read, written by Margaret Coppola, who is with me now. Margaret, thank you so much for your time on this. Really appreciate it. Good to be here. Thanks, Andrew. That was Margaret Coppola. You can read her work in C2C Journal, and I would encourage you to do it. She's uh, quite a quite a lovely writer. Had not uh, seen much of hers before, but I, I believe she's written books on, on similar subjects as well. So it was good to have her talking about that. Yeah, how follow the science has just become this refrain when science itself may well have been the problem, or at least a large part of it here. Uh, but again, we are not anti-science. We are not knuckle-dragging, science-denying yokels, or at least we try not to be. Oftentimes, science is what the people who claim they're following the science are wanting nothing to do with. And I think this is true among a lot of the climate change folks. We hear from the federal government right now, as we talked about yesterday, this call for a so-called just transition. Now, this is there's nothing just about it, which is why we've called this interview series. I'm about to introduce today's installment of the unjust transition, because it is a transition predicated on politics and not science. It's a transition that presupposes oil and gas are the problems in society and that we can just solve all these things by getting them out of the picture. So uh, we set out at True North to tell the story of Canada's energy sector. And we're doing this through interviews with uh, leaders and CEOs in this very sector. And I often use oil and gas as a stand-in for energy and, and vice versa. And I, I realized that I'm cutting out a key part of this discussion, which is mining. So I decided we would, uh, well, we started the series yesterday with Michael Binion, but I decided today we would uh, air the interview of uh, Mike Young of Northback, which is a, a mining company with roots in Canada and Australia, as you'll hear in a moment. And to learn a little bit, I actually learned quite a bit from this interview about mining that I didn't know. So hopefully you will as well. Sitting down with Mike Young here. Now, before we get going, I want to talk about the name of your company because you shared something rather amusing that ties into our audience here at True North, I think. Sure. So we are a Canadian company that is Australian owned and we were looking for a new name for the company that reflected both. And so we came up with Northback. And so that's a combination of the True North, strong and free, and the Australian Outback. And that is literally where the name comes from. And our logo is the Maple Leaf and it sits above the Commonwealth Star of Australia. Okay, and that's the that's what you have on your lapel no, there. My lapel. Okay. The coal pin, yes, that's right. Well, you brought up the coal pin. Let, let's talk about that because that's so often treated as, I think, a dirty word by by a lot of people that are, are in this space on the political side of things. But where is your perspective on the industry? It's a great question. So I, I, I want to change the name of metallurgical coal to steel carbon because... 75% of the world's steel is made using metallurgical coal or steel carbon. And a lot of people don't know that. And they don't understand that there's quite a difference in terms of, of uh, use, value, and use, and emissions between thermal coal and metallurgical coal. So our company is a metallurgical coal project. We have a project in Crowsnest Pass of southern Alberta. And we're looking to develop that project to, to really feel the need, uh, fill the need coming up. So steel production is going up and it's going to continue to go up it's one of the four pillars of modern civilization um, western civilization eastern civilization if you build something with concrete you're building with steel steel is fundamental to our lifestyle 
oftentimes, I mean, we, we've heard in Canada for uh, the last few months very aggressively the need to build housing. We have a high density housing, all of these construction projects that governments and, you know, all political parties are promising that are all requiring steel. So that doesn't happen without coal, you're saying. That's correct. So as I say, most of the world's steel is made using coal. Um, people talk about green steel. It, it will certainly happen, but it will not be a fundamental shift in the way steel is made. Um, the companies, uh, the countries that make the steel worldwide are, are dominated by Asia and they have blast furnaces. Look, those, those countries are definitely looking to reduce emissions. And that would be through carbon capture and other uses of the CO2 that's released when you make steel with, with mm -hmm. coal. Um, but that's not going to slow down. And as you say, we're continuing to build houses. Um, they have basements. The basements are made out of concrete and concrete is always reinforced with steel. So why is that part of the story never told? Because I mean, similar when we're talking about energy sources, oftentimes we're being told we need to rely on these mythical alternatives that don't really exist yet. And in this particular case, you're talking about something where there really isn't even a proposed alternative to it. Well, that's correct. Um, some steel is made using electric arc furnaces, and that's that's about thirty percent. Uh, but that that the feed for that is scrap steel and recycled steel. I mean, that's one of the good things about steel; it's recyclable. But that's not sustainable. If you're growing something, recycling can't inherently do it. So we do need to mine iron ore. We do need to mine metallurgical coal to make the steel going forward. And most people, as with a lot of metals, people really don't know where they come from, and that's. To me, that's a failure of the school system. You know, nobody takes geology, right? Nobody understands where the metals come from. A lot of people think they come from factories powered by unicorns. I don't, I don't know, but you know, they, what, what I do know is they don't know. And part of what I want to do is educate people on, on how steel is made and the role of steel carbon in that process. And what's the breakdown for Canada of where the, the metallurgical coal supply that we need is coming from? So most of the metallurgical coal in Canada comes from the West, uh, predominantly out of the Elk Valley in BC. Uh, the Crow's Nest Pass was once uh, a powerhouse of coal mining, both thermal and metallurgical. So it was uh, discovered when they drove the railway through. Um, so that allowed, you know, coal played an important role in maintaining Canada's sovereignty mm -hmm. because a lot of people don't know that one of the reasons the railway was built was to maintain the sovereignty of the 49th parallel. Mm -hmm. I mean, coal is... You know, the history of Canada is, is, is linked with coal, and we have coal mining uh, down east as well in Nova Scotia, and that's mainly thermal. Uh, but uh, world's, most of the world's metallurgical coal is from Australia, so they're a big part of the market. But uh, Canada has a lot of it, and we have a, a, an opportunity and an obligation to make sure that the world is getting metallurgical coal from what is basically the world's best mining jurisdiction. You know, we have the best environmental laws, the best labor laws. So if you're going to get if you're going to get your coal from somewhere, Canada is the best place. What is the I mean, what are the barriers you're facing then? Is is it on permits for the mining itself? Is it on export? What are the barriers you're seeing in the industry and or just in your company? Um, well, in the industry, uh, as you say, coal has a bad history. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, you look at selenium in, in the Elk Valley, for example, and those are those are real issues. But those are legacy issues from the way that we used to do things. One of the things that people don't see is just how modern modern day mining is of all metals not just coal but copper and all the metals that we call the critical minerals modern day mining is nothing like people imagine mm. you know it's highly technical um there is a lot of what we call you know robotics uh and there's a look 
people think we're not environmentalists. One thing about being a geologist is I get to go into the environment and I spend a lot of time in the bush and we care for the environment. We, we seem not to, um, people seem not to think that. Well, I think you know a lot more about the environment than so many of the people trying to vilify your industry. Well, that's true. Actually, that's a fair point. Um, but we can we can sustain we can sustainably mine and protect the environment at the same time. I mean, you know, we make we make no make no mistake when you when you do a mine, you alter the environment. But what you do afterwards, if you do that in consultation with not only the First Nations and the rights holders, but the people of that area. When you when you go you walk away from that project, if you work with them to actually close that project in a way that the land is still usable mm -hmm. in whatever manner that may be, then that's a win for everybody. So when we talk about the just transition, oftentimes this is viewed in the context of, of oil and gas, but it does apply to mining as well in a very very real way. So what's your concern looking at the messaging you've seen from the government on this federally? So what a lot of people don't realize is that when you move to renewables, renewables inherently, by the laws of physics, have lower energy density. That means that you need more metal to produce the same kilowatt of power as you would with, say, a baseload like coal, gas, uh, hydro, or nuclear. So yes, we move towards cleaner power sources, uh, but there is a cost to that. And the cost is you need more metal and you need all the metals. And of course, steel is, is the foundation, it's the workhorse of the just transition. You're not moving towards new power lines, transmission lines, um, solar panels, windmills. I mean, a windmill, the foundation of a windmill is just full of reinforced steel. And then we're back to coal, we're back, <laughs> which is- We're back to steel carbon. Yeah, steel carbon, yes. We'll go for the well, rebrand here, to, yes. We are back to that. And so that's the thing is there are, there are you know, the foundations, both metaphorically and physically, of renewables is steel and concrete. Um, both of which um, have have emissions. So you ask yourself, do you want to stop emissions or do you want to manage emissions? And I think if you're going to have a transition to a cleaner power source, then you're going to have to think about how we mine more metal, but we do it in a way that's sustainable and environmentally, you know, less le less environmental impact. Well, I mean, some mining companies would stand to benefit a great deal from this. I mean, any company that's in lithium, for oh. example, I mean, the transition to battery. Like, so every now and then you'll see a mining executive that's up there, you know, speaking about, you know, the need to get away from oil and gas. And then you realize it's because they're going to be cashing in hugely on this. But I think you're right when you point out managing versus eliminating, because there does seem to be a, a rather fantastical view by some people that we can just get down to zero without obliterating very large things that we don't have alternatives for. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the customers that our, our project will have is Japan and Korea. And, you know, those are modern Western nations. And they're still building blast furnaces and they're still going to be producing CO2. But they're looking, they're looking at carbon capture and sequestration. Um, they're looking at alternate uses of carbon. I mean, you can, you can change carbon dioxide into graphite. Mm -hmm. You know, anything can be engineered out. It's, there's a cost to it. Right. And so this is the thing people, I, I think, are failing to realize that, yes, we can have clean energy, but there's a cost to it. Things will cost more. Um, and so, you know, for us and for all miners, the lithium miners included. Now, don't forget, the lithium guys only make batteries. They don't produce electricity. Mm -hmm. They only store it. Yes. But, you know, the thing is, is if we're going to go to uh, cleaner types of energy of all sorts, then it's going to require more metal. 
So to talk about steel carbon, I'll, I'll try to see if we can get some momentum behind that for a moment. Is there a market for what Canada is mining? I mean, does Canada have enough supply that we're competing globally on this in a large way? Not hugely. I think we're about fifth in the world. Okay. We're still an important market. And I think one of the reasons we're an important market is because the alternate markets are places like Australia, Mongolia, uh, Russia, pre predominantly. So, you know, you can start to hear the, the political Mm -hmm. uh, aspects of supply come in. So with the with the rise of ESG mm -hmm. uh, globally, um, Canada becomes a, a good place to be buying your metal because as I said, it's one of the best, you know, Australia and Canada, the two best mining jurisdictions on earth in terms of, of, of stewardship of the land, of your employees. And so people are going to look to these two countries to be getting, um, to be getting metal that's sustained, well, not sustainably, but Mm -hmm. um, responsibly mined. Yeah, because the demand exists regardless. So it's just about where the optimal way to get the supply is. That's right. And, and, you know, ironically, one of the things that we saw in Australia when I was living in Australia, where I spent 35 years, is that people honestly believe that if they stopped a coal mine in Australia, that that coal somehow would never get burned. But it would. It would come from a, a place where the coal is mm -hmm. less high quality and would actually be worse off for the planet. So when you start looking at at mining and the requirement for um, steel carbon around the world. Um, steel carbon coming out of places like Australia and Canada are better for the planet than coming from multiple sources. Steel carbon, we'll, uh, we'll get it trending there. Mike, thank you very much and best of luck with all this. Thank you very much. That was Mike Young of North Back, part of the Unjust Transition series here on The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll have more of that series for you in the days to come on this program. But in the meantime, I've got to get back to court. We will see you all later. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.